The Bitcoin Reformation, an Adamant Capital report written by Tur Demeester and read to you by Guy Swan, host of the Crypto Economy podcast. Introduction At the end of the 16th century, a ragtag group of rebel intellectuals and entrepreneurs founded a country on some of the least desirable land in Europe so often flooded that it needed hundreds of miles of moats while fighting an 80-year-long war against the largest empire in the world. From this struggle and melting pot of ideas emerged the Dutch and British Golden Ages, innovative economic institutions that changed the world, as well as one of America's most successful socioeconomic experiments, New York City. This report makes the case that the 21st century emergence of Bitcoin, encryption, the internet, and millennials are more than just trends. They herald a wave of change that exhibits similar dynamics as the 16th and 17th century revolution that took place in Europe. Some of the conclusions our report suggests. Bitcoin tolerance versus intolerance to become a major political fault line. Bitcoin's primary drivers will be in saving, lending, and underwriting. Collaborative custody to become an industry standard. Offshore banking may transform into Bitcoin banking. Bitcoin to mature quickly. Bonds, annuities, loans, and insurance. Initial exchange offerings, or IEOs, expected to stay and grow larger. Bitcoin savers could accelerate a revolution in the history of thought. Part 1. The Past as Key to the Present. A Note on Method. As an investor and analyst, I aim to identify socioeconomic trends and predict how they will evolve. I read, curate, and share. I separate signal from noise by listening to experts who I think have integrity. And yet, a major challenge remains in that secular trends often are clearly identifiable only in hindsight. The solution, I believe, is identifying parallel historic perspectives. In order to reduce my chances of remaining a trend-blind contemporary, I study history in the broad sense. As I read history books and papers, I'm on the lookout to find parallels and symmetries with present-day trends. In doing so, I stretch my mind to consider dynamics that I hadn't previously, and am able to hypothesize about causalities that were previously inconceivable to me. I believe this improves my ability to assign probabilities to certain outcomes, which in turn allows me to strategize my investments and entrepreneurial endeavors in a more rational way. In the past, I've drawn parallels between Bitcoin and the early petroleum industry, the search engine wars, the domain name markets, the growth of peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, and internet protocols. But I kept feeling that I was failing to fundamentally grasp the magnitude of the epic in which Bitcoin functions as a catalyst. It wasn't until I studied the era around the Protestant Reformation that I felt I'd found a potential blueprint 
of sufficient scope. I hope you enjoy reading this report as much as I did researching it. Sincerely, Turdemeester. Quote, Whoever wishes to foresee the future must consult the past, for human events ever resemble those of preceding times. This arises from the fact that they are produced by men who ever have been and ever will be animated by the same passions, and thus they necessarily have the same result. End quote. Niccolo Machiavelli, 1517. Part 2. Four Preconditions of a Reformation We believe there are four conditions that enabled the Protestant Reformation, and we think those same four preconditions are present today. A painful status quo in the form of a monopoly service provider. Technological catalysts for change. A new economic class. Incredible defense and exit strategies for rebels. Rent-Seeking Monopolistic Service Provider In the 2002 paper, An Economic Analysis of the Protestant Reformation, it is argued that the Catholic Church was a monopolistic provider of spiritual services, and that the control that religious authorities had over portions of the legal system provided them with the market power to exclude rivals. For centuries, the Catholic Church exercised a highly regarded gatekeeper function. It controlled the keys to heaven by a forgiveness of sin, typically provided by priests. The authors of the paper argue that, quote, if the religious monopoly overcharges, it risks two forms of entry. A, the common citizenry may choose other dispensers of religious services, and B, the civil authorities may seek a different provider of legal services, end quote. And this is indeed what happened during the Reformation. In present day, the monopolistic service provider whose rent-seeking is being questioned is the International Monetary and Financial System, the IMFS. Since the 1944 Bretton Woods Agreement, the U.S. dollar has enjoyed the exorbitant privilege of being the world's reserve currency. Similar to the Catholic Church in the 16th century, financial authorities' control over portions of the legal system provides them with the market power to exclude rivals. In addition, the fiat-settled banking system has a gatekeeper function, where it controls the keys to the wealth and pensions of the world's citizenry. In the current environment of quantitative easing, negative interest rates, and currency wars, the banking monopoly is arguably overcharging for its services. Customers are paying the inflation tax, which means it risks two forms of entry. A, the common citizenry may choose other dispensers of financial services, and B, the civil authorities may seek a different provider of financial services. In other words, given more adoption, we may see political entities embrace Bitcoin as a full-fledged money for all legal purposes. Quote, Temporary levies became permanent, and many new taxes were imposed on the wealthiest church members. Church documents reveal that sons and grandsons of heretics had to pay up for the sins of their fathers, 
the souls of deceased relatives could be extricated from purgatory for fees. End quote. The Marketplace of Christianity, page 117. Technological Revolution, Catalyst for Change In the 16th century, several world-changing inventions gained meaningful adoption. The printing press lowered the cost of a book from a year's labor to the price of a chicken. Double-entry bookkeeping accelerated international commerce. Compass and hourglass improvements allowed for returning from unmapped territory, which unlocked world exploration. And the boom in scientific research led to the advancement of yet more inventions. In the late 20th and early 21st century, several inventions have brought about a digital revolution. Telecommunications and email allow for working remotely. The commoditization of computation and data storage massively lowers infrastructure overhead, which allows for startup costs to decline. Open source software provides entrepreneurs with robust and free building tools. Cryptography opens up a suite of defensive technologies for permissionless security solutions, and social media allows for rapid and non-bureaucratic dissemination of information. Chart In 15th century Europe, quote, the raw price of books fell by 2.4% a year for over a hundred years, end quote while the share of university courses on scientific subjects rose from 25% to 40%. Chart. The price of one megabit per second internet connection dropped by 99% in 20 years, from nearly $100,000 to under $10. New Economic Class People with something to fight for. During the 16th and 17th centuries, maritime trade throughout Europe improved and grew significantly. Flowing all the way from Switzerland to the British Channel, the Rhine River was a major artery for trade, and the cities of the lowlands were natural beneficiaries of being located at the mouth of it. Intercontinental shipping took off as well, primarily with the spice trade between Asia and Europe. The increased volume of trade amplified the impact of technological innovation, and port cities with good rule of law saw a rise in specialized industries like painting, fabrics, book printing, weaponry, tapestry, schooling, and medicine. The specialists at the top of these industries could solicit business from all across Europe. As a result of increased trade, technological innovation, and intense specialization, overall wealth increased and the relative contribution of agriculture to the economy diminished, which weakened the wealth of landlords and churches in favor of the new merchant class. Today, class systems in the West are less defined. However, we do believe that certain parts of the population are much more change-oriented than others. The millennial generation, in particular, has a distinct skepticism towards traditional finance and enthusiastically embraces digital innovation. 
A 2016 survey by Facebook found that only 8% of millennials, quote, trust financial institutions for guidance, end quote, and that 45% are, quote, ready to switch if a better option comes along, end quote. Furthermore, a survey by the Transamerica Center for Retirement Services suggests that 76% of millennials believe that, quote, compared to my parents' generation, our generation will have a much harder time in achieving social security, end quote. And 79% are also, quote, concerned that when I am ready to retire, social security won't be there for me, end quote. Aside from being the most invested in the Bitcoin economy, millennials as a cohort are expected to control the largest share of disposable income by 2029. Quote, Generally those from Antwerp are splendid and very rich merchants, eager to emulate the strangers, audacious and capable of trading anywhere in the world. End quote. Guicciardini. 1612. Quote, the new millennial, or birth year cutoff of 1996, is important because it points to a generation that is old enough to have experienced and comprehended 9-11 while also finding their way through the 2008 recession as young adults. End quote. Pew Research. 2018. Credible Strategies for Defense and Escape Even with superior economics on his side and with significant wealth, a citizen will be a lot less tempted to oppose a domineering status quo if he doesn't also have credible strategies for both defense and escape. It was no coincidence that the Dutch Revolt lasted 80 years, longer than any other uprising in modern European history. The, quote, sea beggars were undisputed masters of water. In 1573, the Dutch successfully defended against the siege of Alkmaar by flooding the surrounding fields. They also wiped out a critical Spanish supply line using flooding. A year later, the same tactic saved the town of Leiden, the Dutch nucleus of education, from another Spanish attack. The western core of the Dutch Republic was protected by a, quote, Waterline, a string of fortified villages close enough to allow for optic communication with surrounding lands that could be flooded in a matter of hours. And because of easy access to the North Sea and a large fleet, there were the fallback options of immigration to the British Isles, or, as the 17th century came around, venturing to the New World. In the 21st century, the defensive technological suite available for people who question the economic status quo is cryptography, which can enable privacy and protection from asset seizure. Today, encryption is very widely used. For example, the application of HTTPS on the web grew from 13% in 2014 to 77% in 2018. However, encryption defeats the purpose of privacy if the service provider can be backdoored. We therefore see an increased interest in digital self-sovereignty, with millennials adopting Bitcoin and showing interest in projects such as VPN, Blockstack, Wi-Fi mesh networks, Tor, Signal, 
Purism, U2F or Universal Two-Factor, PGP, and so forth. Quote, If conquering the other towns takes as much time as the ones we've already subjugated, there isn't time or money enough in the world to overpower the 24 towns which are rebelling in Holland. End quote. Spanish commander Don Luis de Recanzins, 1574. Quote, Cryptology represents the future of privacy, and by implication, the future of money and the future of banking and finance. Given the choice between intersecting with a monetary system that leaves a detailed electronic trail of all one's financial activities and a parallel system that ensures anonymity and privacy, people will opt for the latter. Moreover, they will demand the latter. End quote. Orlin Grabe, 1995. Doctrines, Then and Now One intuitive parallel between the Protestant Reformation and now are the doctrines which reflected the very essence of the rebellion. They were the cause of unity and conviction, and we see similar unifying doctrines today. In the 16th century, the principal doctrine of the Lutheran Reformation was summarized with the words sola fide, which translates to faith alone. This phrase encapsulated the idea that for access to heaven, believers didn't need a priest anymore. Their faith and devotion alone would suffice. Another common call of the Reformation was sola scriptura, or by scripture alone which signified the rejection of any original infallible authority other than the Bible. In the Bitcoin space today, there are several battle cries that tend to be dismissed as memes. In our view, they reflect a rebellious essence that could herald a modern-day reformation. A first is vires in numeris, which stands for strength in numbers. The spirit of this creed was summarized by Tyler Winklevoss in an often quoted line, quote, We have elected to put our money and faith in a mathematical framework that is free of politics and human error, end quote. Another motto used by Bitcoiners is, Don't trust, verify. This phrase has been around since the 1990s and may have started as a twist on Ronald Reagan's Trust But Verify. It encourages users to independently verify the integrity of new open-source software and, in the case of Bitcoin, to verify the validity of transactions on the blockchain. A forum post from 2013 originated the word HODL, which now refers to the commitment to the self-sovereign act of holding onto one's, quote, stash of Bitcoin, no matter the volatility. Finally, there's the mantra, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, which refers to the lack of trust in third-party custodians. Quote, The whole idea of having an independent currency, rather than just more private or censorship-resistant payments for existing currencies, didn't exist among either cypherpunks or academic cryptographers until libertarian futurists introduced it. End quote. Nick Zabo, 2019. Part 3. Financial Economy During a Reformation. 
In the Reformation, we saw the emergence of a new cultural and economic class trying to defend itself in a dynamic, volatile, and hostile environment. It was a network of idiosyncratic economic actors, highly invested in their cause, cut off from traditional ways of doing business, with highly potent defenses at their disposal. Driven by a ferocious demand for increased financial security, this resulted in a number of innovations and secular trends. Below we discuss several characteristics of the 16th century Dutch financial economy and extrapolate from them some likely parallel trends that could sustainably emerge in the Bitcoin space. Deposit Banking Full Reserve Strict Protocols in 1609 in the Netherlands, merchants and city officials collaborated to found the Amsterdam Wieselbank, AWB. It served two main purposes. First, to guard the gold and silver wealth carried by the many hundreds of merchant refugees from the southern Netherlands and other territories. Second, it would issue internationally trusted, florin-denominated bank money, and bills of exchange. The level of security of the AWB at the time was unparalleled in the world. It was located in Amsterdam, a city protected by the Dutch waterline, which formed a moat over 50 miles long. The bank's vault and operations were located at the town's most central and visible location, City Hall and the bank's organizational structure reflected a strong desire to be uncompromising in its fiduciary duties. The AWB counted four commissioners, and it was prohibited by the physical office to ever be staffed alone. The commissioners supervised four bookkeepers, four counter-bookkeepers, three receivers, and a precious metal assayer. To prevent fraud, each of the bookkeepers was only responsible for a designated task. The VOC Trading Company, arguably the most powerful economic entity of its day, was an AWB account holder, and it only made payments through the Weisel Bank. Despite a somewhat blemished track record as a full reserve bank, the reputation of the AWB was unparalleled in the 17th century and its stability and reliability played a key role in the prosperity of the Dutch Republic. As late as 1820, Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations praised the money of the Weiselbank for, quote, its intrinsic superiority to currency. The AWB was not cheap. It charged a 1% annual storage fee for gold coin, as well as opening fees, transaction fees, and a 1.5% withdrawal fee. Overall, the advantages of the AWB's bank money were such that its banknotes carried an agio. They traded at a premium versus the actual gold and physical coins they were backed by. In the Bitcoin community, in response to a cultural aversion of trusted third parties, high risk of theft and loss, and long-term regulatory uncertainty, we expect increased adoption of highly secure, trust-minimized Bitcoin deposit banking solutions. The most trust-minimized solutions are those whereby theft or fraud is, by design, rendered extremely difficult. 
With the use of delay mechanisms and programmable nesting of signing authority, we're seeing the beginning of a compelling and robust custody suite for Bitcoin, which can generate a hitherto unparalleled level of security. We believe there is a lot of promise in these smart contract solutions recently explored by people such as Bob McElrath, Brian Bishop, and Peter Wella. In that sense, the growing adoption of multi-sig addresses for Bitcoin storage is likely a promising start of a much bigger trend. As of October 2019, 32% of all Bitcoins in circulation are stored in the more privacy-friendly P2SH address format, and 12% are visibly stored in multi-sig addresses, up from 0% in 2014. Quote, It is no wonder that these Dutchmen should thrive before us. Their statesmen are all merchants. They have traveled in foreign countries, they understand the course of trade, and they do everything to further its interests. End quote. 17th century petition presented to Oliver Cromwell. Quote, a transaction setup scheme that binds both the user and the attacker to always using a public observation and delay period before a weakly secured hotkey is allowed to arbitrarily spend coins. During the delay period, there is an opportunity to initiate recovery or clawback, which can either trigger deeper cold storage parameters or reset the delay period. End quote. Brian Bishop, describing multi-sig pre-signed vault proposal, 2019. Enterprise Insurance Cautious Web of Trust with the 16th century seeing an explosion in maritime trade, it also meant that financial technology was needed to deal with the accompanying risk. The earliest forms of maritime insurance were in the form of sea loans, which commanded a high interest rate as they were only repaid upon a boat's safe arrival at destination. This type of contract was especially useful if the investor did not have access to full information about the profitability of the sailor's venture. An alternative was the commenda contract, which gave the investor the right to share in the profits of a voyage in the case of a successful completion. Both were imperfect substitutes of maritime insurance. Early insurance contracts have been found in Italy, where merchants themselves acted as underwriters, which later gave rise to the mutual form of insurance. By the 16th century, insurance had spread to Britain, France, Holland, and Spain. One recurring challenge for the merchants was with claim collection. Some financial centers proved less reliable than others, and if a merchant went with the wrong underwriter, he might never see his money. Given how hard essential information was to come by in the immature shipping market, the agency risk for underwriters was substantial. Sometimes merchants would deliberately over-insure and sink their ship, or they would buy insurance on a ship they knew was already lost. Because of the high risks involved, merchants paid a premium for quality underwriters, and underwriters would often confine themselves to working with merchants they could trust. Other factors that determined insurance rates were the financial stability of the underwriters and the city's rule-of-law culture. 
Insurance broker licensing and guiding was repeatedly tried by authorities in Amsterdam and Venice, but remained largely unpopular. Insurance in the Bitcoin industry is still in a very early stage. Since the advent of the Bitcoin mining industry in 2013, we have seen many examples of proto-insurance contracts. Investors will pre-order mining rigs from mining startups who use the proceeds to produce the chips and manufacture the machines. And similar to 16th century maritime trade, upon successful completion of the mission, are then able to share in the venture's profits. Also, several Bitcoin custodians have some form of insurance, but the fine print often shows that it's only the hot wallets that are insured, which usually represents less than 10% of the Bitcoin under management. Similar to 16th century commerce, there are a plethora of unknowns when it comes to underwriting risk in the space. Price volatility risk, regulatory risk, infosec risk, service provider risk, and so on. Given how globally saleable Bitcoin is, even nation-state-level attacks cannot be ruled out. Insurance providers that are successful in this space will have to be extremely knowledgeable about both operations and technology and will need to work within a framework that guarantees accountability and long-term relationships. It is no coincidence that self-insurance in the form of a reserve fund has become a staple of the Bitcoin custody industry. Quote, While there is in excess of 500 million of, quote, traditional crime and 2 billion in specie capacity in the market, there is only around 150 million of crime and 500 million of specie cover available for crypto risks. End quote. Aon Director Jeff Hansen, July 2019. Liquid Collateral as Basis for Lending and Derivatives In 1602, merchants from the Netherlands merged together six small companies and pooled 64 tons of gold to form the Dutch East India Company, VOC. The VOC's mission was to own and operate a fleet of merchant ships to trade with Asia, for which it received monopoly privileges by the Dutch government. The monopoly allowed the fleet to play a military and economic role in the ongoing war with Spain. In 1604, the company did a public offering, the first modern IPO, allowing any buyer to own its shares. It was a success. In Amsterdam, over 2% of the population subscribed. The deliberate absence of bearer shares in the clear ownership and transfer rules fulfilled key requirements for a transparent market. In 1610, the first dividends were paid to investors. The VOC shares proved highly liquid and desirable as collateral. Within months after the company's foundation, shares valued at 27,600 guilders were used as surety in a prisoner exchange deal. And in 1607, a nobleman borrowed 2,000 guilders at 8% against 3,000 guilders worth of VOC shares as collateral, an LTV ratio of 66%. The collateral market for VOC shares was very active, but because it was a private market, not many records survived. By 1623, 
the government specifically regulated the procedure for VOC share liquidations in the case of loan defaults by their owner. And by the 1640s, the Amsterdam Stock Exchange had a regular repo trade operation for VOC shares. Interest rates on the Amsterdam market for secured loans dropped from 8% in 1596 to under 6% in 1620. The deep liquidity of the VOC market also made them the perfect underlying asset for a flourishing derivatives market in 17th century Amsterdam, with forwards including shorting, options, and repo contracts. In his VOC-focused dissertation, historian L.O. Petram concludes that, quote, After the period 1630 to 1650, investors were primarily interested in the financial services the secondary market provided, rather than in the East India trade itself, end quote. Shifting over to today, we see similarities between Bitcoin savers and the historical VOC shareholders. They are often long-term committed. They have a relatively high concentration of their wealth tied up in the asset. They don't like to sell it as that triggers capital gains taxes. And as millennials, they have ambitions to make further investments. Going forward, we expect the use of Bitcoin as collateral for borrowing to become increasingly widespread. We are also bullish on Bitcoin derivatives markets, as it allows businesses to precisely tailor their risk management strategy as they pursue sustainable growth in the Bitcoin industry. Our hypothesis is that the sectors in which price volatility impacts an economy the most will grow the largest derivatives markets. VOC shares in 16th century Amsterdam, agriculture and precious metals in the 1980s, interest rates today, and tomorrow, perhaps Bitcoin. Access to Capital in a Deflationary World Life annuities are contracts that are sold for a fixed price, giving the issuer the right to receiving regular payments for as long as he lives. They were frequently used from the 14th century onwards as loan substitutes because they didn't violate the Catholic Church's ban on usury. For the 16th century, the law usually guaranteed that perpetual annuities could be canceled by paying back the capital sum. Life annuity contracts were often used to fund capital-intensive enterprises that had a relatively low risk profile, businesses, farms, and local governments. In the 14th century lowlands, two economic profiles emerged. In the coastal area, with sandy soils and regularly pestered by floods, many landowners borrowed themselves into eventual expropriation. In the more stable interior of Flanders, annuity-based credit was used for accelerating business development, most often to unlock a real estate investment while older inhabitants would buy the contracts as a form of retirement income. Annuities could be transferred to third parties and thus became a popular financial instrument among the urban population. As the Dutch Revolt came into swing and as income from maritime trade increased, the protection of cities and their citizens became more important and cities would raise capital by means of issuing annuities. An important reason why annuities were popular so much earlier than mutual life insurance 
which only emerged in 18th century England, was that it requires a lot more trust in the entity providing the policy. The insured needs to literally trust them from beyond the grave, and there is no collateral that can be clawed back. There was potentially a cultural component as well, where customers felt more comfortable betting on a long life, annuity, than betting on a shorter one, life insurance. Having only recently passed its 10th anniversary, Bitcoin-denominated lending is alive and well. Genesis Capital reportedly generated over $2 billion worth of Bitcoin-denominated loans and borrows since launching in March 2018. We're seeing demand coming from hedge funds, businesses with Bitcoin inventory, and individual traders. We see a parallel between historical annuities issued by Dutch cities and today's IEO tokens, which stands for Initial Exchange Offering. For example, Bitfinex created an IEO token called LEO in order to tap the market for liquidity during a legally challenging time, as well as to de-risk its tether-related liquidity problem. By making an open-ended offer to repurchase LEO tokens at market value, this token has annuity-like characteristics. Other offshore exchanges have done the same. Binance created an offering with Binance Coin. Hobi launched Hobi Token, and FTX has FTX Token. Bitcoin exchanges often have loyal customer bases, which depend on their services to some extent, and these tokens allow them to tap into that trust by, in effect, borrowing from the public. In analogy with the embattled Dutch towns and the income-hungry merchants, we expect a continued popularity of these annuity-like offerings among offshore Bitcoin exchanges and crypto-trading millennials. In fact, they are the first examples of proto-life insurance products in the Bitcoin marketplace. Over time, we expect the emergence of life insurance mutual companies, which might very well breathe new life into the severely weakened traditional life insurance industry. Studies have repeatedly shown that inflation dampens demand for life insurance over time. And so conversely, if Bitcoin as hard money sees widespread adoption, it is logical for life insurance products to become highly popular once more. Quote, An IEO is like Goldman Sachs crashing into NASDAQ. It's a new breed of fundraising that could potentially change what's happening in finance. But regulations have to be figured out. End quote. Stephen Nerioff, CEO of Alchemist, June 2019. Graphic of U.S. national data. In 1914, bank deposits were $5 billion. Life insurance assets were $5 billion. 2018, bank deposits were $14 trillion and life insurance assets were only $4 trillion. Quote, A one percentage point rise in inflation is expected to be accompanied by a 1.2% decline in net real-life insurance in force per capita. End quote. UC Berkeley professor David Babel, 1981. Part 4. Conclusion Venture capitalist Eric Weinstein recently opined that the adage, good ideas beat bad ideas, is false.
and that the correct formulation is rather, quote, fit ideas beat unfit ideas. He's making the Darwinian point that, similar to survival chances of animal species, an idea will only flourish when these circumstances are exactly ripe for it. And indeed, history shows the quality of an idea in itself is not enough for it to blossom socially. A working steam engine was described by Hero of Alexandria in the first century BC, and yet it was only commercialized 1,600 years later. The movable type printing press already existed before Gutenberg's machine in 14th century Korea, yet didn't lead to a revolution there. And centuries before Columbus and Hudson, the Vikings had already landed in America. In other words, often circumstances are such that a highly potent idea just doesn't make into popular adoption. But once in a while, the puzzle of circumstance fits together in a peculiar way, creating fertile ground for many ideas to be adopted at once and allowing for a spectacle of chain reactions that profoundly reshapes society. The Protestant Reformation was such a time. Ideas germinated, rebellion erupted, wounds healed, and a generation of radical entrepreneurs produced an unprecedented series of foundational economic and financial innovations. This happened 500 years ago, and it may be happening once more. Today we see broad parts of society millennials especially, acting increasingly critical of central bank interventionism. At the same time, technologists, at an accelerating pace, are developing an array of tools that allow for disruption of the economic status quo. In a decade, the millennial generation is projected to have the highest earning power of all generations, and this tech-savvy post-9-11 generation has encryption at its disposal, as a defensive technology. Meanwhile, the Bitcoin ecosystem is maturing in all aspects of its economy, in particular in deposit banking, insurance, lending, and derivatives, and early forms of life insurance. If this process persists, Bitcoin's layered protocol suite could become a global powerhouse and potential alternative to the IMFS. Are you ready for the Bitcoin Reformation? Quote, If the potential of a startup is proportionate to the size, times, the incompetence of its competitors, the most promising startup of all would be one that competed with national governments. It's not impossible. This is what cryptocurrencies do. End quote. Paul Graham founder of Y Combinator, August 2019. Appendix Brief Chronology of the Protestant Reformation with focus on the Low Countries. 1. Early Descent In 1511, Erasmus of Rotterdam publishes the wildly popular quote, Praise of Folly, a bold satire of the Catholic Church. Six years later, in 1517, Martin Luther goes public with his, quote, 95 theses, a scathing 
criticism of the rent-seeking practices of the Catholic Church. Within months, thousands of copies circulate throughout Europe. In response to this perceived heresy against Catholicism, the first book burnings take place in 1521. In 1522, King Charles V institutes the Inquisition in the Low Countries for the suppression of heretics. In 1523, we see the first heretic executions by fire. In 1535, Charles V condemns all heretics to death, and in 1539, he cracks down on the tax revolt against him in Ghent. During this time, no social stratum is free from the politics of suppression. Even devout Flemish Catholic Gerardus Mercator, the cartographer famous for his 1569 world map, is prosecuted by the Inquisition in 1543 and spends seven months in prison until he is released based on lack of proof. In that same year, Copernicus publishes his book on heliocentric theory, and Flemish anatomist Vesalius fundamentally changes Galen's anatomical model for the first time in 1,500 years. In 1548, humanist Christophel Plantagen moves to Antwerp. His book-publishing house will quickly become the most prestigious in Western Europe. In 1555, we see the founding of the first underground Protestant municipality in Antwerp. 2. Open Rebellion In 1559, the Habsburg king departs Brussels and leaves for Spain, after which his half-sister Margareta becomes governor of the Netherlands. 1566 becomes known as the Miracle Year. It begins with Flemish nobility sharing a no-prosecution petition with the governor of the Netherlands, which yields a mild reaction. Emboldened, Protestant factions start preaching inside Catholic churches with accompanying vandalism later known as the iconoclasm. A local truce is reached without the governor's consent, and Protestants are allowed to preach in six churches within Antwerp's city walls. Later that year, the defeat of an army of Protestants, Giesen, starts tilting the power back in the favor of the royalists. 3. Crackdown in 1567, the Spanish Duke of Alba arrives in the Netherlands with an army of 10,000 Spanish veterans. He institutes a, quote, court of blood, and in his six-year reign as governor of the Netherlands is considered by some to be responsible for the death of over 18,000 people. Upon arrival in the Netherlands, Alba raises taxes and begins with the construction of a huge fortress on the edge of the city which is completed in 1572. This pentagonal citadel becomes, quote, one of the most studied urban installations of the 16th century, end quote. Three years later, the Spanish crown is in financial trouble and stops paying its mercenaries in the lowlands, who at the command of Antwerp Citadel's commander, Sancho de Avila, pillage the city of Antwerp in 1576. This Spanish fury becomes one of the century's worst atrocities, wherein 7-10% to 10 of the population is murdered in three days, and a thousand houses are destroyed. Despite fierce resistance in the following years, including a partial destruction of the Spanish citadel, 
In 1585, the city of Antwerp surrenders to Spain, and all resident Protestants are given four years to settle their affairs and leave the city. The same happens in Ghent and Brussels. In the 20 years following the sack of Antwerp, the city loses nearly 50% of its inhabitants to immigration. Europe's strongest economy has just suffered a heart attack. For the next century, Antwerp wages remain 35% lower than, for example, Leiden, a city merely 85 miles away, yet in Protestant-friendly northern Netherlands. 4. Netherlands, New Amsterdam, New York the fall of Antwerp and the rest of the southern Netherlands helps kickstart the Dutch Republic's Golden Age by virtue of the influx of some 50 to 100,000 Flemings. Simultaneously, England, a relative religious safe haven, sees its human capital boosted by waves of inbound migration. After decades of war and conquest, the Spanish Empire has weakened internally, in part due to the health consequences of inbreeding and its strong hierarchy-based rule proves no match for the nimble, dynamic, and commercially-oriented organization of Dutch and British economies. The combination of religious and commercial tolerance on the one hand, and a defensible territory surrounded by water on the other, proved to be a recipe for success, and for the next 200 years, the Netherlands and England are at the forefront of economic innovation and growth. In 1579, the North Dutch provinces gather to sign the Union of Utrecht, in which they assert their independence from Spain. The document declares complete religious freedom in the Dutch territories, a freedom which will also come to be respected in New Amsterdam. In 1588, after the destruction of its mighty armada in the British Channel, Spain gives up on its quest to conquer England. In 1602, the Dutch East India Company is founded, among others, by Dirk van Oz, an Antwerp immigrant. Van Oz also helps fund Henry Hudson's 1607 expedition to North America, signs his name on one of the world's oldest stock certificates, and co-founds the Amsterdam Exchange Bank, 1609. In that same year, 1609, a peace treaty is signed between Spain and the Dutch Republic, in 1620, the Pilgrim Fathers, who would later sail on the Mayflower and found the Plymouth Colony, settle in the Dutch city of Leiden, where they find refuge from religious intolerance in their native England. In 1621, Flemish-Dutch merchant Willem Usselinx obtains permission from the Staten General to found the Dutch West India Company, WIC, with a monopoly on the exploration of North America. In 1624, the first Dutch settlers arrive on Governor's Island, outside of Manhattan. In 1626, Welloen Peter Minui purchases Manhattan Island from the Lenape Native Americans and chooses it as the capital of New Netherland, which at the time still was a purely commercial enterprise. In 1638, after the manuscript is smuggled out of Italy, Galileo Galilei's heliocentric Two New Sciences is published in Holland. 
1643, Isaac Joges estimates Manhattan's population at 500 and the number of languages spoken there at 18. In 1644, English poet John Milton publishes Areopagitica, a philosophical defense of freedom of speech and expression. In 1654, a small group of Portuguese Jews arrives in Manhattan, and after the Jewish community petitions the WIC back in Europe, the new Amsterdam governor, Peter Stoizevant, eventually agrees to let them stay setting a welcoming precedent for future non-Dutch settlers. In 1664, New Amsterdam is conquered by the British Army and is renamed as New York. The population is 9,000 at the time. In 1665, Spinoza's teacher and Flemish refugee, Franciscus van den Inden, publishes Free Political Theses, in which he defends freedom of speech, freedom of religion, egalitarianism, abolitionism, and direct democracy. In 1683, British Earl Thomas Dungan is appointed as governor of New York and tasked to promote the Anglican Church there. He never succeeds. In 1689, John Locke publishes A Letter Concerning Toleration, in which the philosopher makes a highly influential case for religious tolerance. In 1777, New York adopts the first state constitution without any religious establishment and becomes the only revolutionary state that does not have a religious test for holding office. Quote, Give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to the conscience above all liberties. End quote. John Milton 1644. Quote, this convention doth further ordain, determine, and declare that the free exercise and enjoyment of religious profession and worship, without discrimination or preference, shall forever hereafter be allowed within this state to all mankind. End quote. New York State Constitution, 1777. At the heart of Bruegel's The Battle Between Carnival and Lent, a married couple is shown. The man carries a sack, symbolizing egotism and imperfection, and the woman an unlit lantern, signifying absence of wisdom. Accompanied by a fool and kindly supporting each other, they wander off. Interpreting his pictography, we see a supportive message about the future of the Reformation. While the common man and woman aren't as enlightened as the intellectual classes want them to be, they generally do not participate in tribalist warfare, and this disengagement isn't informed by general apathy, but rather by a pragmatic interest in peaceful family life and individual economic progress. With Bruegel, we are compassionately optimistic about long-term improvement of the human condition, even in the case of a Reformation 2.0. Sure, society teems with prejudice and poor judgment on both sides of any argument, but given a long enough time horizon, burdens of bigotry and fanaticism can be offloaded, and lanterns of reason can be lit. The journey of history meanders, ever allowing for forks with better world potential. 
I hope you enjoyed this reading of the amazing piece by Ter de Meester uh, from Adamant Capital titled The Bitcoin Reformation. If you want more great works just like this one and to get more insight into Bitcoin, first follow Ter de Meester, that's T-U-U-R-D-E-M-E-E-S-T-E-R on Twitter. And you can also check out the Crypto Economy podcast with Guy Swan where this and hundreds of other works are made available in audio, all about the nature, the meaning, and the impact of the Bitcoin system. Thank you guys for listening, and until next time, take it easy.